take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1 as we pick up on our study of this gospel uh, that we did prior to Christmas during Advent. We got verses 1 through 5 covered, and now we come to verse 6 uh, as we're just really getting started in this book, and it's going to be a great journey. I, I just want to tell you, it's going to be a great journey as we study this, uh, this gospel together over the next months. In John 6, it's almost like John puts just in a little parenthetical note. If you remember in the first five verses, he began with a statement of the Lord's nature as being God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word being Jesus. And he concentrated on the fact that, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, he, he talks about the fact, he doesn't talk about his birth, doesn't talk about the nativity. He talks about the fact that Jesus is a pre-existent one. Before he was born in that manger, he existed in the presence of God. He was with God. He was, with, he was, he was God, and he was there at creation. He created all things that are. Without him, all things were created, would not have been created. Jesus is the point of all biblical history, and indeed, Jesus is the point of all of eternity. And John wants us to recognize that. And, and then in verse 6, he makes one little quick jaunt to, to talk about John the Baptist. Now, my, my sermon title today is, What Do You and John the Baptist Have in Common? And the hint is, it's not the word Baptist, not the name Baptist. The word Baptist for John literally means John the Baptizer or John the Baptizing One. Uh, Baptist is kind of a quick way of saying it. We Baptists all love to say, oh, there's our beginnings. It's, it, you know, it, it's... Uh, what we have in common with John is not the name Baptist. He would not have recognized that name in his day. He was merely John. Probably, if anything, he was known as John, the one who came out of the wilderness, the one who ate locusts and honey, the one who came dressed in, in wild garments and rugged garments. It, it wasn't John the Baptist in his day, but he was the one who came baptizing. But I want you to recognize as we read these verses together this morning that John, the gospel writer, the evangelist, does not focus on all that John the Baptist did. You can find in all three other gospels uh, pictures of John's ministry, his preaching, uh, repentance of sin, and baptism for, for the repentance of sin. You'll hear about him baptizing Jesus in, in clarity in the other Gospels. But in this Gospel, in John's Gospel, he has one thing in mind that he wants you to see about John the Baptist. And that one thing is the commonality that you and I share with John the Baptist. The one point that, G, that John wants us to see about this messenger, about this forerunner, about this one who, who came six months prior to Jesus onto the scene, there's one specific and one important thing that he desires for you to see and for me to see. And he desires for us to take from that some understanding of what our ministry is and what our role is because it's very similar. Although it's not the inaugural time, it's very similar with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, in a very real sense, is a pivot of biblical history. Now, we would probably quickly say, well, Jesus is the real pivot, but Jesus himself said that John was kind of the pivot of biblical history. In, in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, uh, Jesus makes this statement. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. But since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. 
So Jesus even marks John the Baptist as that pivot that led us from the law and the prophets and from proclaiming law to coming to proclaim gospel in the kingdom of God. Jesus says John has a great place in the kingdom because he's that hinge, if you will, that transfers us from the law to the gospel, from the law to grace, from the law to the sacrificial sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's a significant statement that Jesus makes about John. But hear what John, the gospel writer, says about John. Verse 6. Now, I've, I've got down verse 6 through 8, but I'm going to read through verse 13. And we'll look at that today, but we'll come back to some of that in future weeks. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There is the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He is the light of the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Now that is a, there's, there's first of all a contrast that John the writer here wants to put between Jesus and and John the Baptist. He makes it clear that he came to testify. He came as a witness uh, to the light, but he himself was not the light. Rather than, than say, oh, John was a great light that came to shine an even greater light on Jesus, didn't do that. He said, no, John came to testify to the light, but he himself was not the light. The very first thing I want you to see here in this verse, verse 1, uh, verse 6 rather, what I want you to see is the true nature of the Christian minister's office and indeed the true nature of every believer, what they ought to be. Because as, as we heard from the reading in Acts chapter 1, in reality every believer is a minister of the gospel. Every, every Christian is a minister of God's grace. Uh, it's not just those who stand in the pulpit. It's not just we who have been ordained and set aside and do this as a full-time vocation. We are pastors and we are teachers, but we are pastors and teachers, Paul says, for one purpose, to equip the body to do the work of ministry, to equip the body to carry out the ministry. If the ministry is left up to those who are quote-unquote professionals, the ministry will never get done. It'll be very lacking. It'll be very weak. It'll be very anemic. But if pastors and teachers can equip the body to minister to one another and minister to the world, to be witnesses in the world, then it magnifies and multiplies and glorifies Christ Jesus even more through the work that Christ intended for every believer to have. So in verse 6 and 7, we find out that John came as a witness, and that really is the true nature of all of our responsibilities. It says he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. You need to understand this very clearly. And sometimes we, even who are Baptists, get this confused. Pastors, Christian ministers who are standing in the pulpit or minister in other ways, in a full-time way, Christian pastors are not priests. I'm not a priest other than a priest just like you are. There's the priesthood of all believers 
but only in that respect am I a priest. I'm not a priest who is a mediator for you before Christ. I don't come in such a way to say, oh, you come to me and I'll talk to God about you and, and that'll help you better. No, we all have free access to God through the only mediator, the writer of Hebrews said, the only mediator, which is Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the only mediator we have. And we have direct free access to him. So Christian ministers are not priests. Uh, and they're not agents some kind of special agent into whose hands we commit our souls and, and, and we believe they can help us and they carry on our religion sort of as our deputy. Uh, I don't, it's not something that you say, well, I, I really, I'm going to grow because my pastors uh, and my church really, they, they walk with the Lord, they pray, they study the word, and so by, by osmosis somehow I will benefit from it because they'll be my deputy. No, not at all. We not, do not stand in that kind of role. We stand, every one of us, as witnesses to testify to the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. That was Peter's role on the day of Pentecost. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, Luke records for us, and, many, and with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I mean, at, at, at Pentecost... Peter not only preached to the lost and, and proclaimed to them that Jesus Christ was the Savior, but at the same time, he's also exhorting others to, to, to share this gospel, to take this gospel to them, and, and to the world that they live in, and share the truth and declare to them, be saved from this perverse and godless generation. It was Paul's purpose in, in Acts chapter 20. If you remember, as he was leaving Ephesus, and he was speaking to the Ephesian elders there and talking about his ministry. He said, I don't know where I'm going. I, all I know that uh, trouble and toil and turmoil await me. I know I'm going to be put in chains, and I don't know whether I'll live or die, but, but there's one thing I do know, that while I was in your presence, I, solemnly was, I, I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said, my role is to testify. My role is as a witness. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, my role among you has not been to be your priest, but it's to be a testifier, a witness of the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I loved Scott's sermon last week where he just kind of preached the whole book of Acts in 40 minutes. I thought that was amazing. I really did. I, I, uh, I was impressed. When, he, when I started listening to that and he said, we're going to look at the book of Acts, I thought, man, they'll still be going time I get back home this evening. But, but he didn't. He did it in 40 minutes. But, but the focus of that was that it's our responsibility, it's our call as believers to share the gospel. And, and we're going to equip you in Sunday school in a tremendous way in the coming weeks to do that through the Exploring Christianity curriculum we're going to talk about and teach you how you can explore Christianity yourself and get a grasp of it and then share that with others. Because, folks, that is our, that is our purpose. That is our call. John came testifying. John came pointing. John came saying, as one of the other Gospels tells us, he came declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's our responsibility. That's our call. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's our ministry to point to Christ. One other place in John's Gospel, John said this. He said, John the Baptist said this. You know, when they wanted to make him something special, he said, No, don't understand, uh, understand this. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. 
that's got to be our that's got to be our passion that that's got to be our desire you know there are too many pastors and and you know them and you can recognize them and you can pick them out without any trouble there are too many pastors who stand up and say i'm the i'm the answer I'm God's answer for everything. I, I'm, God's, I, I, I'm God's great gift to you. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, I'm not God's great gift to you. If I'm the best God's going to give you, you're in a lot of trouble, let me tell you. But I'm here to testify that Jesus Christ is great. I'm here to testify to you that you need to turn to Christ and look to Christ because He is your hope. He is your source. He is your strength. He is your everything. And that's what John was saying. He must increase. He must be glorified. He must be seen in all his majesty and glory. And I must decrease because I'm just a messenger. I'm just a witness. I just came to testify to all that he has done. Second thing I want you to see here in this, these verses we read this morning is found in verse 9. And that is it, it shows us one of the principal positions which our Lord Jesus Christ occupies towards, toward mankind. It shows one of his principal positions. Now, as we read on in the Gospels, even in the Gospel of John, we're going to find out he's the door, he's the good shepherd, he's the bread of life, he is the life, he is the, the light of the world, and, and all sorts of things that, that John is going to express. He's the vine, we're the branches. John's going to express a lot of things that he is in position to believers, in position uh, to those who have trusted him. But in this verse, John, the Gospel writer, parallels this one thing and he says he is the light he is the true light and this true light coming into the world enlightens every man Jesus is to the to the souls of men what the sun is to the world this morning when we woke up well, it was a little cloudy but it still got light from the sun some days we wake up, there's no clouds in the sky, and the sun shines so brightly that if you wanted to sleep late, you couldn't because it just illuminates your whole bedroom. I mean, the, the light of the sun is a tremendous light, and it shines on everybody. And John is saying there is a sense in which Jesus is the light of all men. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus, just by shining light, saves all men. John makes that clear in a moment. But he says he is the only light that can satisfy the soul. He is the center and the source of all spiritual life, all spiritual warmth, all spiritual life, health, growth, beauty, and everything else. He is the light that shines forth on all of that. But yet this passage shows what a great grace Jesus Christ is. I love something that, that uh, uh, one of my favorite writers, Jerry Bridges, had to say about God's grace that fits into this light so well. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we kind of treat God's grace as though it's something that, that sort of supplements what we don't have. You know, we do the best we can, and, and we get so far, and then God does the rest by his grace. You've probably heard people say that. You do all that you can to, to get to Christ, and then God's grace will take you the rest of the way. Maybe you're really good, and you don't have it a little way to go, you would think, or maybe you're really bad, and, and there's a long way to go. But the truth of the matter is, God's grace has nothing to do with your good works. Nothing. N nothing. I want to emphasize that word, Nothing. Because when we think our works merit us in the favor of God, we miss the whole point of what grace is, and quite honestly, we miss the whole point of the gospel. Jerry Bridges made this statement. He said, God's grace, then, does not supplement our good works. 
Instead, his grace overcomes our bad works, which are our sins. God this, did this by placing our sins on Christ and by letting fall on him the wrath we so richly deserve. Because Jesus completely paid the awful penalty of our sins, God could extend to us his grace to us through complete and total forgiveness of our sins. Jesus on the cross received the wrath that you and I deserved if we're believers. For not believers, that wrath is still yet to come for you if you're not in Christ. If you're in Christ, the wrath has been paid for on the cross, has been suffered by Christ on the cross. That's what grace is. That's what light is all about. Listen, my favorite word in the Bible is, is this may stri uh, strike you as strange. You might think it's love or grace or mercy or whatever. But my favorite word in all the Bible is the word but. B-U-T. Little, what's, where's my English? What is that? That's a uh, transition. It's a what? Conjunction. That's right. I couldn't think. I was trying to say transitionary thing. Conjunction, but. But always ties to something else. Paul said in, in Ephesians 2, he said, you know, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy, has saved you. But God. And, and so but has really become one of my favorite words because the, the idea is in grace is that but God through his light that John talks about here in verse 9 and through his grace but God has intervened. God did something we couldn't do for ourselves. You know, you often hear people say, well, you know what the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. I always love it when somebody says that because I immediately pull out a Bible and say, would you find that for me? And they say, well, I know it's there because somebody told me it was. Well, it's not there. In reality, the truth of the Scripture is God helps those who are absolutely, totally destitute and helpless. Those who say, God, I can't do it. I can't earn it. I, can't, I, I just can't make it, Lord. I can do nothing. And God's grace does it. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God intervenes. We were dead in our transgressions, but God intervened. We were in bondage to sin, but God intervened. We were objects of wrath, but God intervened. God, who is rich in mercy, intervened. Because of his great love for us, God intervened and made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, all this is summed up in the one succinct statement, it is by grace you have been saved. Our condition was hopeless. But God intervened in grace. God intervened through the grace of his light. He was the light of life. He was the light unto the world. He was the light which enlightens. He was the light which shines brightly, John says. And he said, there's the contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus was the light. John was not the light. Jesus was the light who could save, who could show grace, who could die in our place because he was sinless. Jesus was the light who could shine into your heart and show your sin and show your need for a Savior and bring you to repentance. John could only point. I have one of my favorite pictures in my office. I don't, I don't normally like drawings or paintings of... of the cross and the crucifixion and the passion, but, but this is one of mine. It was by Grunewald. 
a German artist back in the, I think, 1700s. And Grunewald painted this picture, which has no historical context, okay, in, in some of the parts of it. But it has great theological context. Because it shows Jesus dying on the cross. It shows a lamb at the foot of the cross. It shows Mary weeping before the cross. But off to the side, holding a Bible that has the inscription on it, he must increase and I must decrease, is John the Baptist pointing like this. Pointing toward the cross. And I love that painting. Because you see, that painting is representative of the ministry of John, but it's also representative of my ministry and your ministry. I, I don't say, look to me. I don't say, trust me. I don't say, believe in me. I say, listen, watch that finger. That finger's pointing to the cross and to the one who died on that cross. I am but a witness and a testifier, giving testimony to what has taken place in history, in space, in time, where the light of the world, the, the, the light to all the souls of man, shines and warms and shows forth. That's what John's role was. So, so we, see, we see first of all and understand first of all that, that, that the Christian office, the Christian's ministry is one of ministry and witness and testifying. We see secondly that Jesus occupies this position of light and grace before the world and, and whether men will see or not whether they will uh, believe the light and believe the grace or not doesn't do a thing about Christ doesn't affect him one bit he is the true light regardless of what men do with it there is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus Christ no light at all for those who are outside of Christ except Jesus Christ himself thirdly uh, we see in this passage, in, in verses 10 and 11, we see in this passage the desperate wickedness of man's natural heart. You might call it depravity. You might call it sinfulness. But a good word for it is wickedness. Now, I know you look around, you say, well, I know people who are not in Christ, and they're not really wicked men. Yes, they are. They may not, in human standards, do wicked things that we think of but if, if the scripture is true and the scripture is always true their hearts are wicked and deceitful and, and, and they, they turn from him and it's, it's proven in this passage he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him I mean they came and, and, and he showed forth the light he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him and, the world, and those who were his own that is the Jewish people in that particular instance in a historical context they did not receive him but all of his creation all of those whom he created you and me Gentiles alike did not receive him because their heart was deceit, deceitful and wicked Christ was at first in the world invisibly the Old Testament has images of Christ. The angel of the Lord many times is, is believed to be a theophany or a manifestation of, of Christ in the Old Testament. Even, the, even in the fiery furnace with Daniel, even in the lion's den with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you see the, the angel of the Lord, and, and that's believed by theologians and by commentators to be a, a theophany of the Lord Jesus Christ appearing there. He was in the world invisibly in the Old Covenant. And the world didn't see him. But then through Mary, the Virgin Mary, he was born and he became visible. 
And, and he, he was there from the very beginning, ruling, ordering, governing the whole creation. And by him, Colossians 7, 1.17 says, by him all things hold together. It's by Christ that, that everything stays in place, you included. That your body doesn't just fall apart. This pulpit doesn't just disintegrate. It's, it's because of Christ's work and Christ's oversight that all those things happen. Yet men didn't know him. They didn't know him. They didn't honor him. They didn't believe him. He said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light. I am the one who has come to show you God and to live that before you perfectly and sinlessly. And yet men would not know him. As a matter of fact, they were more intent on worshiping what was created. They were more intent on worshiping things or themselves than they were worshiping the Creator, Jesus Christ. John, uh, Paul makes that clear in Romans 1.25 when he says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's why the natural heart is called wicked, and rightly so. It sees the glory of Christ shining, proclaimed through you and me, proclaiming that, living that, and speaking that. And yet they say, I want no part of that darkness. I want my things. I want my idols. I want my stuff rather than the one who created all that there is. Wednesday night, I, I shared a quote uh, from Stephen Charnock, one of my favorite Puritan writers. And I think it fits here because Charnock said, when we believe that we ought to be satisfied rather than God glorified, we set God below ourselves. Imagine that he should submit his own honor to our advantage. When we do this, we make ourselves more glorious than God, as though we were not made for him, but he made for us. This is to have a very low esteem of the majesty of God. He went on to say in that same passage in, in a essay entitled on spiritual worship he said whatsoever any man aims at in worship above the glory of God that he forms as an idol to himself instead of God and sets up a golden image and God counts this not as worship I mean our our focus our worship is to be on him and it's the wickedness of the heart that causes us to set up any number of other things it might be the style of music. It might be the it might be the beauty or lack of of the sanctuary. It might be the it might be the people that are around us. It might be our own comfort. It might be whatever. If we set up our own satisfaction and say, if I'm not satisfied, I want nothing of it. Rather than saying what I want to see above anything else, I'll sit on a hard wooden bench if God is glorified because my satisfaction, my comfort is not what we come here for. It's for the glory of God and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even we who are believers, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We still struggle with that little bit inside that says, yeah, but. And that's not my favorite word when we say, yeah, but. Only in the Bible, when it's but God, is it my favorite word. When we say, yeah, but, that's all true and that's all good. But, you know, really, what I really want to do is I want to see God glorified as long as I'm satisfied. I want God to submit his will to my will. I want God to do what I want him to do. And it's, it's an amazing thing. 
when our goal, our purpose, when you walk in here this morning, when you walked in here this morning, and when you walk in here next Sunday morning, or whenever you come back, your purpose is not to come and say, okay, let's see if, let's see if I can be satisfied. Let's see if the sermon's good enough. Let's see if the songs are songs I like. Just satisfy me. That's not the purpose. Not even your purpose. Not my purpose, not your purpose. Your purpose is to come in and with all your heart and with all your voice and with all your strength to lift up the glory of God in Jesus Christ. To lift up the glory of the Savior. That's your purpose. And so that's why Paul said in Ephesians, he said, listen, when you come together, minister to one another with songs and psalms and spiritual hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Minister to one another as, as you lift your voice and praise to him. That's the whole purpose of our coming in here. And I guarantee you people notice whether you're glory and worshiping in Christ or, or not. And you minister to them or do not minister to them by how you worship in His presence, by what your purpose is when you come into this place. Finally, I want you to see one other thing, then I'll be through. In verses 12 and 13, he, he talks about the vast privileges. And we'll come back to this a little more fully in the next uh, uh, in the next week or so but in verses 12 and 13 he talks about the great vast privileges of all who receive Christ and believe on him but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even those who believe on his name that's a grand privilege and we know that it comes by grace you know, it, it's, it's that the visualness of him giving you the right to become his children is that you receive him and you believe him. I mean, that's, that's really evidence. That's a mark that the work of God of grace in your life has taken place. When, when, God, when, when God has given you that right, that privilege to receive him, then you believe and you receive him and you, you glory in that reception. And, and God manifests his great truth in that. That's a mark of a believer, one who has received, one who has believed. And out of that, you can, you can draw all sorts of marks of a believer from the Scripture. You can say a mark of, a, of the new birth, marks of a believer that accompany the new birth, is a sense of sin, a faith in Christ, a love for others, righteous living, separation from the world, whatever. Now, if you've been around here long, you know that the choir uh, graced me this morning by singing my favorite anthem clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that really is my favorite anthem. I can tell you i got a lot of favorite songs, but that really is my favorite anthem of all anthems. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone because it, it points to that. But there's one phrase in there that points to this, the great truth of these verses right here, that to those who received him, to, in them, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And it's when, when the song gets pointed, and I sit there and get cold chills and, and want to shout, but I know we're too sophisticated to do that. But I, I sit there and I, I, when it comes up and it says, and one day when I stand before your throne, your glorious throne, you will say, child, you are my own. Oh! I mean, that just grabs me. That just, I can just envision that. I've trusted Christ. I know I'm a child of God. I know God's at work. But, but the glory of standing before his judgment throne and having him look down at me and say, Bill Haynes, you are my child. You are in my family. I have received you. I have 
gifted you with grace. I have worked in your life. And, and, and listen, let me tell you, Haynes, it wasn't all that good from your side. Matter of fact, Haynes, if I'd left it up to what you could do, never would have happened. But it wasn't on your basis. It was on the basis of my grace that, child, you are my own. If that doesn't give you cold chills, I'm going to pray for you. I really am. I mean, that's, a, that's a glorious truth of what John is saying here. To those who believe, he received, he adopted into his family. He gave them the right to become children. They weren't natural children. You were not a natural child of God. You were adopted. We know a little bit about adoption around here. We've got some adopted children in our fellowship and and they're such a great joy. But they had no right to be in that family. They didn't call up from wherever they were in an orphanage somewhere and say, hey, we've got, I've got a right to be your child. Come get me. There's no right. It was by the grace of those who wanted to bless somebody's life that they went, found, and adopted. And, and it's the same way with God's grace. We can't say, well, God, I've worked hard and I have a right to be your child. We don't earn that right. John says he gives that right. It's a grace gift. It's adoption. It's the most beautiful picture of salvation in the Scripture, in my estimation, is the picture of adoption by him. So John the Baptist your commonality with him, what you have in common with him, is simply this. You're to testify about what you know. Giving a testimony, uh, uh, testifying, giving a witness or witnessing is not telling, oh, how I feel. I, I one day felt giddy and just kind of did whatever. Testifying is pointing to Jesus. It's saying there is the Savior. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is the one who matters. My experience is not really important in this matter. What is important is that that is Jesus, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus is the only way to a right relationship with God. Nothing else matters. Nothing. And John says, see this. Hear this. Savor this. And live this. Live it. And speak it. Now, I know some people say, well, I, I, just, I just live my testimony. And when you do that, most people say, oh, what a good person that is. You know, they're really, that's really a good person. They really are good. Aren't they good? Jesus said there's none good but God. And so when you let people just assume that you're good, you're, you're not being John the Baptist. You're being self-centered and self-righteous and self-glorifying. Because so, you've got to take it and say, but the reason I am what I am is because of Christ. The reason I am what I am, it's the old John Newton statement from the, uh, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace. He said, 
I am not what I desire to be, but thank God I am not what I used to be. That's grace. And we're to point to the only source of grace, the one who hung on that cross, the one who died in our place, the one who is the sacrifice for sin. And say, don't look at me. I have nothing to offer you except Jesus. I'm not good. I'm a pretty wicked sinner myself, but I've got a great Savior who by His grace overcame my wickedness and my sin, but God. You want to get excited, just go through the, especially the epistles and look for the word but. Change your life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you this morning that we can come into your presence to glory in your name, that we can come before you to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. We, we can stand before our world and say that he is the light and he is the life that shines for every man to see. And, and John said that John the Baptist's purpose was that men through him might believe. Lord, help people believe through us. Not just we who stand in pulpits, but we who live out in, quote, the real world. To share the truth of the gospel with those you bring into our life. Father, your word is truth. Your gospel is truth. Father, I pray for men and women, young people here this morning who don't know you. I pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit will, will shine a light into their heart to show them their sin and their need for a Savior. And Lord, you will draw them to yourself. I pray for others, Lord, who need to evaluate quite honestly. Am I trusting in Christ alone and His grace alone? Or am I trusting in some of my good work helping Christ out? Because if that's the case, there's no salvation. Period. We were dead. We were blind. And blind people don't just decide to see, and dead people don't just decide to live. Something has to happen. And what happens is your grace. Father, thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.